scripture reading this morning from the first chapter of the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Following down. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, I, I have to, I, I need to confess personally, and I'm just completely jealous of somebody who can rip off their mask when they get up here to the podium and not have your hearing aids fly off and your microphone fly <laughs> off and everything else. So Brian gets up here and pulls, pulls, and I'm like, I can't do that. What is that about? That's probably not as funny to you as it is to me as I have had this panic moment where I'm trying to get it off and suddenly I've got stuff everywhere. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't care how cold it is outside. And I don't care if maybe we don't have quite as many people today because it's cold outside or something like that. There was this little boy named Kason Foster. Kason Foster, and I came around the corner up here, and if you know Kason at all, there is no walking up to you. There is only running up to you, and there's no walking up to you and just kind of, <laughs> and, and it just thrilled my heart, and I'm guessing that many of you want to say thank you to our children's ministry for the gift that they gave us for uh, Valentine's Day. Let's give them a big round of applause. I think that was wonderful. I, I don't know about you, um, but when we open the letter of Romans, it kind of makes your heart beat just a little bit faster. If you're a Christian, particularly, you have this sense that something special is going on there. For those of you who don't know when the New Testament was put together in the form that we have it now, it is not that Romans was the first of Paul's letters, it's just that it was the largest. And if you kind of track the letters as they go along in the order that you have them, what you'll see is that the biggest is first and Philemon, the smallest, is last. But it has still taken on a role of being first in these letters that, again, we as people of the church particularly want to gravitate to. The picture on the screen probably does a little bit of disservice. By the time we get to chapter 13, there's this guy named Tertius, Tertius, excuse me, Tertius, who, who as we see Paul in this dark room at night, late at night, and the Holy Spirit has taken hold of his hand, and he's just kind of sitting there and letting the words flow out of him. That's somehow we, sometimes how we see biblical inspiration. Tertius says something like, I, Tertius, who wrote all this down for Paul, and we kind of have to step back and wait a minute, what do you mean Tertius did this? Paul wrote this. 
Well, you need to always kind of see when these kind of writings come together, there's probably more than one person in the room with this go- when this is going on. We know that Luke is a companion of Paul and that Luke's gospel is shaped by Paul's journeys and Paul's teaching. We know that people like Timothy and Tertius and Silas are in the room with him probably. And they are working hard, what is probably in Corinth, as he's writing this letter. And he's anticipating that he is wanting to make a trip to turn in the money uh, from a collection. We'll come to that in a minute in Jerusalem. And then he wants to head west. He's kind of always been heading west. He, is covered, he headed out when the elders laid hands on him and said, you need to go proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And he Acts, the book of Acts tells us that he headed to Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And he preached the gospel there. And then he went back there again and he was trying to go north, but the Spirit said, no, go west. He's not a young man at this point. Go west, old man. And he winds up in uh, Macedonia, what we know as modern day Greece. And he preaches the gospel then not only to kind of a, a culture that is, that is, while very pagan, uh, not necessarily considered sort of the center, pla- center place that culture developed from. And when he steps into Macedonia and into Greece, he has stepped into a world that is where the language and the thought and the philosophy of everyone in what they would have considered the Roman world was inspired by. And Paul takes on the challenge of preaching the gospel there. Paul has never been to Rome, as far as we know, prior to writing this letter. But the gospel has made it to Rome. The gospel has been gone anywhere and everywhere that people who heard the message of Jesus has been raised from the dead, they went on their businesses and they went in their lives and they wound up in places and the gospel gets planted. In fact, what we we understand from the context of church history is that probably... The church in Rome was established there, maybe even before any of the major apostles made it there. Rome was a very powerful place where the Jewish community was very, very strong. And it would have been very likely that Jews who lived their life in Rome would have been visiting Jerusalem. Maybe for the Passover when Jesus was crucified. Maybe for Pentecost when that first gospel sermon was preached. And so many came to faith in Christ. And no longer putting their faith in the sacrifices and in the law of Moses. But putting their faith in Christ. And they would return to Rome. And begin to tell the story. Look, look, look. When we read the law, the prophets and the writings or the psalms. What we see in there is a revelation of this one named Jesus of Nazareth who God raised from the dead and who sent the Spirit on these men that proclaimed the good news to everyone in every language. And they went home to Rome and they began to tell exactly the same story. First of all in the synagogues, but it looks pretty quickly that the synagogues were uh, resistant to that being the open teaching under their Uh, sphere of influence and so the churches began to meet in homes we have this incredible excitement that what Paul is going to unfold is going to be a statement of the gospel maybe unparalleled anywhere else a powerful sense that as we read these pages we're flipping through 
maybe a lifetime of Paul saying, here is how I want to preach this. Here is how I want this to be understood. And yet, there is going to be a specific context for the way in which he delivers that message. The series that we're going to be going through, and this will carry us through the rest of the spring, will actually, as I have done with several longer teaching segments, we'll take a break in the summer and we'll come back to it in the fall. We're calling it Celebrating God's Good News. I think you heard just in those introductory words that Gary read for us so eloquently that Paul is a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ, and he is thrilled about the gospel of God. Amen? In fact, it is kind of the thing that drives his life. In Bible class a little bit earlier, we read from Acts chapter 20 where he's kind of having a final message with the elders from Ephesus. And what he says over and over again is, I'm not sure I'm going to come back alive. But this I know, that till my dying breath, I want to be about the gospel of God. And somebody said, amen, because that's what we want to be about. So I want to invite you to get on board with us in this celebrating of God's good news, digging into Romans. I want to ask for you two things, if you would, and not... And hopefully this week, if not this week, in the next couple of weeks, I want to ask you, first of all, to read all 16 chapters of Romans in one sitting. It would be great to do it twice. It would be great to do it twice. I'm going to describe to you. I would like for you to just sit and let the words pour over you. Don't hesitate. Don't stop. Just read it all. By the way, I happen to know that some of you read better when someone else is reading for you. And there are several apps, uh, apps that are available or websites where you can tell it to start reading. And you follow along in the text. Now, I want to be sure and say, this does not mean I'm going to knit and let it read to me. I'm going to work on the dishes and let it read to me. I'm going to shovel the snow in the driveway while it's reading to me in my headphones. Wouldn't it be a miracle if we had to actually get out and shovel snow? I have a feeling that even if we have that much snow, none of us are going to shovel it in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Because what we know, just wait. It'll all be gone very, very quickly. But what I also know is that schools have been canceled. Businesses have been closed. And you're going to have a few extra hours to do something like... From... Very good. But the second time I want you to read it, I want you to do something a little bit different. And this will take a little more time. It actually doesn't take that long to read all 16 chapters. The second time I'd like you to read it, it doesn't have to be just in one sitting, but I would say that in the next couple of weeks, get through the entirety of the book and underline things that jump off the page to you. Where do you think Paul is putting his emphasis? Why do you think Paul is stacking up his arguments this way? Because the more prepared in the text you can be for what's coming next in the sermon, the better that you're going to be able to look at and analyze and most importantly, apply to your life, both in the way you think and the attitude of your heart and, of course, with all biblical teaching, what really counts is how we live. I can work very hard all week long for multiple weeks getting ready for a sermon but I can promise you it won't have as much effect if you've already looked at the text and said, God, how do you want me to be about this process? There's something else I want you to do in the next couple of weeks. And by the way, excuse me, I want this to 
be an ongoing process, an ongoing project. I'd like you to get a little journal book to go along with your reading of Romans. You can make notes in it if you want to, but fairly early in the process, maybe even before you write a single note in your journal book for Romans, I want you to write out, I want be sure to begin writing your thoughts on God's good news. Let's just be sure and say, I have a feeling that everybody here and everybody online knows that when we say gospel, we're simply taking a, a Greek-Latin word and kind of putting it in English phonics and saying it the way they said it back then. But in reality, all that we're talking about is good news. That same word would have been used in anybody's vernacular when they came home and said, I've got good news, I've got a raise from at work, or I've got good news, honey, I'm pregnant. Whatever that good news may be, they would have used this same term. So when you think about your love for God and God's love for you, when you think about God sending his son and Jesus choosing to die and being raised by God and God sending the Holy Spirit on those who would put him on in baptism so that we can live a life transformed by God and live a life of witness and testimony to who Jesus is, to God good news. When you think about those things, how would you write that out? How would you explain it to somebody? If somebody said, I see something different in your life, would you say, oh, well, that's because I am a... a essential oil person, and I'm, I, I, I get better because of that. Or I'm on this special diet. I'm a, I'm a paleo diet guy. Or would it, would it be because you say, I've got this great job and it just makes my life. Or would you say, what's different about my life is I have good news that comes from God. And how would you explain that to them? Because in many ways, what Paul is doing in his letter, is explaining to the church in Rome what is the good news that is behind his preaching everywhere he's been on his mission trips. A good news that he says, I want to take to you to see you and bless you, but I want to go on to the West. I want to go on to Spain with this good news. And I want you to hear that good news. But that is not all that's involved in what Paul does when he is writing to the Roman church in this letter, we need to set a little bit more of the stage. The letter is written sometime probably in the early 50s. That's when we kind of see this letter kind of coming together. It may be as late as the mid-50s. Rome is a place of great success. It is the hub of, of administration. It is the hub of business. It is the hub of, of the power of Rome. That whether you were in Israel during Jesus' time there and Pontius Pilate is the one that has to put someone to death or whether you are living in Rome as a, as a Jew who's come to know Jesus and you were there on the day of Pentecost and you saw that happen and you were baptized on the day of Pentecost but you came home to Rome and started telling people about Jesus, you know that the Roman Empire's touch goes absolutely everywhere. It is the influence on their world. And to a certain extent, whenever you read particularly the Pauline letters, 
you have to recognize that the, the context, the cultural context that he's speaking into is always going to be influenced by Roman military, Roman empire, and the pagan religions that, that the empire supported and held up as good. There's also a certain extent to which when we read Acts, we need to hear Luke explaining to outside readers that the Christian faith um, comes directly from the Jewish faith. And so the idea that it would be a new religion that needed permission to exist in the Roman Empire was not true. Because as the Romans had given Jews the permission to worship in their own way, the Christians were simply, the, the, that's their family tree. They come from that. Rome in A.D. 50. The expansion of Julius Caesar has, has kind of reached its climax at this point. And now we're trying to figure out how in the world do we hold on to all this territory that Julius Caesar has prepared, has uh, made way for. And in A.D. 50, a person named Claudius, uh, Marcus Claudius Marcellus, also known as Claudius simply, is the emperor in that day and time. And in A.D. 49, he does something very significant. He evicts the Jews from Rome, and this is quoted from his own memoirs, for disturbances in the synagogue instigated by Crestus. Now, there is quite a bit of, of commentary on this name Crestus because it would have been an extremely common name for a slave in Rome to have at that time. People would have said, oh, there's a slave uprising maybe in the synagogues that they're supporting or something akin to that. But what is thought by many people is that Claudius's uh, note takers, Claudius's scribes who are writing out his memoirs, simply misunderstood what was being said. Crestus and Christus are very similar to each other. And the difference is, is that Christus, the Latin name for Christ, Christ, Messiah, Jesus, that Christus was a common name and Christus was a very uncommon name. And so it would have been very easy for the scribe writing Claudius's memoirs and taking notes of all the edicts that he's laying out, like the eviction of the Jews, that at least a possibility of what's going on is those synagogues have become places of disturbance because there are Jews who were there on the day of Pentecost and Jews who have heard the message of Jesus all over the Roman world that's been expanding out. And they have begun to say, if we're going to be the real people of Israel, if we're really going to be the people who are faithful to God, if we're really going to be the people who follow the law of Moses and hear the prophets speak to us and live within the writings of the Psalms and Proverbs and the rest of the Old Testament, we need to know who Messiah is. We need to know who Christus is. And this did not always go over very well. It made for disturbances. When we read the book of Acts, we see that Paul goes into the synagogues and preaches Jesus. And there are people who believe and there are people who don't. And it can turn into a riot that can turn an entire city upside down. And so, this setting, that in 49, Claudius kicks the Jews out of Rome. 
and included with Jewish heritage people would have been people who practiced along the lines of Jewish faith. In other words, a proselyte, someone who decided that's what they wanted to make their life. They wanted to convert to Judaism. But there's a third group that probably got kicked out. Christians who lived under the Jewish laws of purity and the Jewish ideals of following God. We hear of them quite often. Paul will refer to them. The people who live in Jerusalem often will be talked about as Jewish Christians. That is the idea that they know that Jesus is the Messiah, but they will observe Sabbath. They will eat kosher. They will observe all the holidays and those kinds of things. They will circumcise their boy children at eight days old because they're following the Jewish law and they see Jesus as a fulfillment of everything that God is doing. And so those Christians would have, along with the Jews, probably been kicked out of Rome. History tells us that when business is good, you'll do almost anything to keep business going. And the Jews were good businessmen. And they figured out ways to slowly get back into Rome over the years that would be the, the following years to conduct business. But in 54, Nero is the new emperor and he reopens, officially reopens, and it's thought that really what he's doing is saying, we're, we're going to say it's okay for you to be here even though most of them had come back. Aquila and Priscilla, by the way, when we meet them in Acts, I believe chapter 16, probably represent Jews who had heard about Jesus and put their faith in Christ, continued to live under some sort of Jewish law, but were kicked out where Paul encountered them in Corinth. This idea that the Christian Gentiles would have been alone in the city of Rome and been able to practice Christianity without any encumbrances or any disturbances from the Jewish observing, the, the law observing Christian Jews or the full-fledged Jews who didn't accept Jesus as Christ seems to be the backdrop that Paul is writing to. Because Paul wants to impact the church. Paul wants for them to understand that the gospel calls us to change our lives and change our behaviors. Paul will spend a great deal of time expanding the implications of the gospel. And as you read the book, I think what you're going to discover is that he spends a lot of time talking about how both the Jews have an implication on the gospel, and the Gentiles are a beneficiary of what the gospel means to the Jews. When you get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, which if you've read Romans before, you know that to be some of the most difficult parts of the book to get through. It is the context that as Paul is writing this letter, he is trying to bless a place where the two groups of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are having it, having a hard time figuring out how to be the body of Christ together. I don't know about you and I, but every once in a while, being the body of Christ and being a witness to the salvation of God can be interrupted by relationships inside the church. We don't have Jew and Gentile. We probably don't really have anything that 
gets very close to that bar of measurement. But we still understand what it's like to be divided inside the unified body of Christ. Real quickly, as we look at Paul's other letters, we have a couple of things that point us to something Paul's really trying to get at. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, all they asked, he's telling about this edict that we read about in Acts chapter 15, this edict that says the Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be those who can be faithful to Christ. And at the end of, of his statement about what they approved, including his own apostleship to the Gentiles, all they asked that we should continue to remember the poor. And he says, the very thing that I am eager to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1-4, through 4, now about the collection for the Lord's people. When I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gifts up to Jerusalem. For Paul, there would be very few things that would be more important in affirming the heart of this, of this decision by the church in Jerusalem and the elders in Jerusalem by the apostles that the Gentiles were going to be welcomed into the people of God, welcomed into Israel, not because they've met the requirements of external laws, but because they have chosen to put their faith in Jesus. And there was nothing that was going to testify that more than this gift of people who lived in Macedonia, people who lived in Asia Minor, possibly even people who lived in the Rome, in Roman area, to go back to Jerusalem to benefit the Jewish Christians there at home. This is illustrated in Romans itself in chapter 15. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. They owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Paul says... In my, in my ministry of spreading the gospel, in the ministry of establishing that we can be one church, whether we come from Jewish origins or whether we come from Gentile origins, that the gospel will not make its full proclamation without us being one church. And to him, one of the key ingredients to the Jerusalem church, always understanding that the Gentiles are not trying to take God and Jesus away and run off in their own direction, but instead are unified and see them as part of the body, part of the family of God with them, is this gift that's going to go back to Jerusalem. Paul will even say, the gift of the gospel came to you from, he won't say specifically Jerusalem, but from those roots came the gift of the gospel. And don't you think that we should be people who say thank you in returning this financial gift, this physical gift, to those people. When we put these layers on the book of Romans, we're no longer looking at simply, let me tell you in the best way I possibly can what the gospel is, but what we're hearing is a teaching that says that we cannot be the gospel people unless we figure out how to get through and unless we harness this idea of both Christians that come from Jewish roots 
the roots of the law and the prophets and Christians who come to it brand new. And we want to take that message to the rest of the world. Little did he know that the gospel would go all over the world. And it wouldn't just be, it wouldn't just be about Jewish and Gentile audiences, but European and Asian and European and African. And they didn't even know there's this whole continent over here called the Americas and that the gospel would need to go there. And it couldn't be a European gospel going to the Americas or an African gospel going to Asia. It had to be the gospel of Jesus in which we're all tied together that goes all over the world until Christ comes back and makes all things new. As we close out, I ask you to listen to the rest of these words from the first part of chapter 1 as Paul introduces his message and lay upon it the layer of understanding that he's working very hard to establish this new unity or renewed unity among these people. Starting with verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit and in, in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so they impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been preventing from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. And now some language that starts to point. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And now the words that Gary concluded with. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, but because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now here come the particulars. To the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness, by the way, not a Jewish righteousness, not a righteousness of Gentile faithful believers, but a righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. And we'll be unpacking this statement quite a bit. The righteous will live by faith. Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. And I want to say that, that it is true that that phrase, I'm unashamed of the gospel, is about the idea that I will not let anyone make me cower to proclaim it. But I want to also say that the way we live either brings joy to God or it shames the gospel of God. Very quickly, living unashamed of the gospel that is, to not put shame on the gospel is about following Jesus and fully loving God above all other things. Now think about all the things that we can put there in its place. Well, I'll follow Jesus as long as I can be a Republican and follow Jesus. I'll follow Jesus as long as I can be an American and follow Jesus. 
I'll follow Jesus as long as I can be one of those people in our society who has power and influence because I'm well regarded. Or I can follow Jesus simply because I love God above all other things. Number two, following Jesus in loving others in spite of our differences. Again, it's pretty easy to say, yes, I recognize that there are people outside the church that I don't necessarily get along with. They have such a different value system. I just not sure. And God would say to you, you need to build bridges. Not that you accept the things that they do that are contrary to the gospel of God, but that you love them in spite of it. But make no mistakes. Shame comes to the gospel when in the church we let anything keep us from loving everyone who is included in God's family. Somebody say, we need to be considering that. Number three, just want to reiterate, recognizing the divisions. Not simply saying, yes, I want to get along with everybody, but recognizing the things that might divide us. Whether that's the color of our skin, or the fact that one group of people hold on to a more, uh, shall we say, a traditional view of things, and one group of people have kind of said, I'm I'm, going to leave some of those traditions behind. We must recognize the things that keep me from looking at each and every person, whether we're looking at them online or in person, and saying, I love you. I love you in spite of our differences, and my love for you is greater than our differences. And in doing so, we bring joy to God instead of shame to the gospel. Would you pray with me very quickly? Father God, thank you for this day and this time in your word. I want to thank you in advance for the reading that's going to be done and and the way that your spirit is going to move through that reading to open our hearts and minds. Not just to the meaning and the power of the letter to the Romans, but of how our lives need to be shaped more and more in conformity to your gospel, to loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to loving others as ourselves. Open our eyes to these realities. Bless us in this journey, I pray particularly, that you would give me insight to make every message be something that comes home to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the love that sent him, the love that took him to the cross, and the love that raised him from the dead. It is in that gospel that we want to live. And we all say, Amen. The power of God to bring salvation to everyone. And the question today is have you allowed that power to change your life? If you haven't, or if you have questions about how to make that power change your life into salvation, then we would be glad to enter into that conversation with you anywhere in this room, anywhere, anytime, over a phone or face-to-face. 
If you want to reach out to us online, there's a number there, and we will see that message, and that will start a conversation as well. We ask you to be a part of the salvation of God that is for everyone. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Like a river flowing.